Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your love for us. That's what's brought us here. Uh, really, that's what made us open our eyes this morning, made our hearts beat, gave us even a will to live, even a will to get up and brush our teeth and take a drink of water and go to breakfast and everything that we did. We would be overwhelmed with despair were it not for the love of God as is manifest through so many avenues, um, including your word, nature, the tender associations in our lives. But God, in spite of all those good things, sometimes we are just broken inside and we need more of you to get down to the bottom of these broken places within us. And so we want to pray that your Holy Spirit would be here this afternoon because without your Holy Spirit, I can't say one thing right. I will just very mechanically go through this material and it won't have the power that it needs to have to drive the points home to the hearts that need uh, the message that, that you're going to speak through me today. So I want to give you, God, permission to use me. I want you to use my mind, work in my brain, my faltering, human, forgetful, weak brain. But God, I want you to empower my brain. I want you to make the connection between my brain and my mouth, what it needs to be for me to articulate carefully what these people need to hear. And most of all, God, I want your Holy Spirit to move upon my heart, my heart that without you is a stone in my chest, but with you it can become a heart of flesh, and I can speak with passion of the things of heaven, of the great sacrifice that you made on the cross, and all that that means to us. Jesus, speak through me this afternoon, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, what kind of summer did you have? How many of you had a great summer? Raise your hand if you had a great summer. Indulge me for a moment while I tell you about the great summer that I had. And the privilege of working with, on a volunteer basis, a group of canvassers. I'm from Philadelphia. And my pastor, her name is Tara Vincross. She organizes, uh, she does canvassing. And she organized a group of canvassers called Philadelphia, or now it's called Pennsylvania Youth Challenge. And they went door to door in Philadelphia, in the greater Philadelphia area, to approximately 50,000 homes this summer and prayed countless times with the people that they met, sold books, and they just really were the avenue of a blessing to this urban area. So just working with them, I've been cooking for them, and of course they love me because I've been making great food for them. And it's just been such an awesome summer being able to interact with these young people. It makes me feel young again, you know? Yesterday we went um, down the Delaware River on inner tubes, and you won't believe this, but I lost my shoe. I capsized my inner tube and the shoe went down, and one of my favorite shoes, and I was saying things like, God never lets me hang on to the things I like because I'd get proud, or you know, I'd get too secure in earthly things. And Anyway, the shoe floated away, and you wouldn't believe it. Uh, this, this river's like a mile wide, and it floated like probably half a mile downstream, and one of the kids on the team found it. So now I have both my shoes. That's just an, just an idea of this kind of summer I had. It was just a blissful summer. It's the sweetest summer in recent memory for me because not only did I work with this group of young people, but my daughter, who has actually recently committed her life fully to Jesus, she was baptized in March, was one of the leaders on the team and had a very sweet uh, time with her. So. I had a great summer, and I'm the one that gets to brag about it today because we don't have time to go around the whole room and share summer testimonies, but how many of you had a great summer too? The Lord is blessing. How many of you are enjoying ASI? The Lord is good. ASI is a wonderful conference. My name is Jennifer Schwerzer. I'm a licensed, almost licensed, I should say, professional counselor. I have a practice in Philadelphia. 
and I'm going to be presenting to you today on Jesus Psychology, Inner Healing According to the Wonderful Counselor. Really that title, Jesus Psychology, says it all. I have a burden on my heart to show that all good psychology ultimately has its origin in the Word of God. It seems that uh, since the beginnings of secular psychology, there's been this attempt to separate psychology from the Bible, but I aim to show that all good psychology, and, and everything that's right even about secular psychology, which it isn't all bad, everything that's right about the various theories, it finds its origin in the Word of God. So I have a desire to share that today. I'm going to be breaking this. There's a huge topic, so I'm going to be breaking it down into three parts. I, it was really hard for me to decide which aspects of this broad subject to address today, but I broke it down into three things. Number one, I'm going to talk about the relationship between psychology as a science, as a social science, and the Bible, or another way of saying that might be the Christian and psychology, how to navigate through all the various ideas that we're encountering as a result of what I would call the psychologization of our culture. You know, modern psychology has had an impact on our culture. It's also had an impact on our church. It's had an impact on the Adventist church, not just Christendom in general. How does a Christian navigate through what's right and what's wrong about those influences? It's not all bad, so we have to sort of do a sorting process so we're going to be talking about that first. How does the Christian relate to psychology? Secondly, I want to talk about what is biblical psychology? How does God propose to heal us, to change us? How does he propose to heal all our diseases, as the Psalms say? And so we're going to talk about the process of change and how the Bible speaks to that. And then I'm going to talk briefly about how God uses my practice in counseling as a witnessing tool, because after all, we're at ASI and we're all about witnessing and evangelism. So I'm going to talk about how God has used the counseling practice that I have as a witnessing tool, and also how you, in your lay counseling, in your encounter with people, various encounters with people you're trying to help, really you're functioning to some degree as a counselor, and how God can use that to minister to them and to bring them to himself. So, first topic is how do the Bible and psychology relate to each other? You know, we should never say psychology is evil. I, I hate it when people say that. Don't say that to me, I'll be tempted to slap you, you know? Psychology in and of itself is not evil. In fact, the word psyche is from the Greek suke, which simply means the immaterial part of man. What does it mean? It means the immaterial part of man. That means the inner life of man, our emotions, our thoughts, our inner life, our, the workings of our psyches. That's uh, not the physical aspect of our being, and that's all that psyche means. That's all that suke means. It just means the immaterial part of man. So psychology would be the study of the immaterial part of man or the study of the inner life of man. Amen? And so if, if psychology is the study of the inner life of man, does the Bible have anything to say about psychology? It most certainly does. It, it expounds on human nature. It, it expounds on what it is to be human, and particularly the inner workings of the human being, the human heart and mind. And it also expounds on how human beings change. So the Bible has much to say about psychology. So you might say secular psychology has wrong principles, or Humanistic psychology is unbiblical, but don't say psychology is bad because psychology, brothers and sisters, was God's idea. He was the original psychologist. 
and we shouldn't be in our, in our fear of some of the errors of modern psychology. We should not throw the baby out with the bathwater and become terrified of anything that has to do with psychology. You with me? Great. Um, I went into my graduate studies, and I did this as kind of a late in my life career. I went into my graduate studies with the premise, in, as a Christian, and with the premise in place that the Bible contained the most accurate, the most comprehensive, the most effective, and the most powerful system of psychology that could be found anywhere. I went in with that premise. I spent three years studying the theories of Sigmund Freud, Adler, Jung, Skinner, Rogers, etc. down the line. And you know, this is a little bit of a confession. I, I assumed that I would go in and it would all be this, what I called psychobabble gobbledygook, you know? It would just be nonsense. But in fact, there were times when I was, I was impressed with the profundity, with the depth, and the elegance of some of these theories. And at times even moved and inspired as I read these different ideas. But I left my graduate studies with the same belief that, with which I had entered my graduate studies, that the Bible contained the most accurate, the most comprehensive, the most effective, and the most powerful system of psychology. Amen. <laughs> there was some amazing stuff in there, but it's not as good as what we have. And it, it makes me think of Paul when he said, I am not ashamed, and finish the sentence for me, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, I used to think of Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in terms of him kind of, you know, bragging about, maybe bragging about his own lack of shame. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to stand though the heavens fall. You know, I'm, I'm a good Christian. I'm committed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now I see it in a different light. I see that what Paul was saying was, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It is the power of God. In other words, it's powerful stuff we have here. There's nothing to be ashamed of. So it's not so much I'm not ashamed, it's there's nothing to be ashamed of here. And that's exactly how I feel as pertains to psychology. I am not ashamed of biblical psychology, brothers and sisters. I love it. I have worked in the system now for three years. And I have attempted to help people without God because there were certain situations in which I was not allowed to preach to them and they weren't interested. You know, sometimes if I'm not supposed to preach to them but they're real interested, I'll like sort of do it in a very covert way. But there were situations that I was in where I couldn't preach and they didn't want to hear it anyway. And so I had to try to help them without the Jesus factor. And let me tell you, it was frustrating. It was heart-wrenching. I am not ashamed of the gospel, friends. We have something great here. We, we have something quite powerful here that outshines every other system and theory and modality of psychology. Amen? Amen? So how do the Bible and psychology relate to one another? I want to read a statement here from Mind, Character, and Personality. It says, the true principles of psychology are found where? In the Holy Scriptures. Man knows not his own value. I think it's very interesting that immediately after saying that true psychology is found in the Bible, the first crack out of the box is man knows not his own value. Why does she talk about value? Why does she talk about a sense of self-respect or self-worth? Because what secular psychology has to offer us is actually, it, it pales in comparison to the self-worth that God wants to give us 
through the cross. And so she says, man knows not his own value. You know, the cheap self-esteem that the world tries to pass off as something that we need and something that will help us, it pales in comparison to the self-worth, self-respect that God can give us through the gospel. So she goes on to say, those who pass through the experience of true conversion will realize with keenness of perception their responsibility to God to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, their responsibility to make complete recovery from the leprosy of sin. Such an experience will lead them to humbly and trustfully place their dependence upon God. So look at the bolded words there. The true principles of psychology are found where? In the Holy Scriptures. And then man knows not his own value. So these are kind of the, the highlights of biblical psychology, an understanding of our value. And then the next thing she mentions there in bold is, and I can't get up there, sorry, but it's conversion. So there is a born-again experience that we have that is essential to biblical psychology. And then as a result of conversion, there is what? From the leprosy of sin, and notice that she puts sin in pathological terms. You know, some people say sin is just a moral problem. It's not a, a pathological problem, but it's both, friends. It's both a moral problem, and it, especially when there's addiction, it becomes pathology. But by the grace of God, we make a complete recovery from the leprosy of sin. Amen? And then finally, she talks about people trustfully placing their dependence upon God. So we make an initial surrender to God at conversion, but then the recovery process takes a little bit of time, doesn't it? And it takes some trial and error. So don't get discouraged if you're just not magically delivered from every uh, psychological problem that you have, every addiction that you have. There's a process there where we learn to depend on God day by day, moment by moment. Amen? By the way, all the great theorists studied the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but uh, I have a few notes here. Sigmund Freud was a Jew and studied the Old Testament extensively. Carl Jung wrote a book called Answers to Job, so was acquainted with the scriptures. Carl Rogers, who is the, basically the author of humanistic psychology, studied to be a minister and then changed horses during his university time and studied psychology instead, became a humanist and an occultist. Very interesting transition. Abraham Maslow was Jewish by birth, an atheist, but probably read the Bible. And Eric Fromm wrote a book called Ye Shall Be As Gods. Isn't that interesting? So these men were acquainted with the scriptures. But they didn't preach the scriptures, did they? They didn't preach a pure form of biblical psychology. What they did was they took some aspects of the truth as it is in Jesus, and they changed it slightly, and they put their name on it and marketed it to the masses. But they derived it from biblical truth, and that's why those theories have any power at all. The wise man tells us that there is no new thing under the sun. Satan can't create anything. He can only take what God has created and pervert it, change it somewhat, and then market it as if it's his own. Here's a fantastic quotation about that. It says, Satan is the originator of disease, and the physician is warring against his work and power. Let me just put a pause button there. Notice that she uses the word physician. When she's talking about a physician, this is often true, for instance, in the book Ministry of Healing. When she uses the word physician, she's talking about someone who is treating both body and mind because physicians had a broader function back in her day than they have now. We have compartmentalized physical 
wellness from mental health. And there are two different practitioners that address those things now. You have the physician treating the body and the counselor or the psychiatrist or the psychologist treating the mind. But back in her day, the physician really took care of the whole person. So she's essentially here saying the counselor. Satan is the originator of disease and the counselor, and boy do I know what she means by this, is warring against his work and power. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. How far? Everywhere. Infidels have made the most of these unfortunate cases, attributing insanity to religion. But this is a gross libel. That means it's a slander. It's an, it's an unjust criticism. The religion of Christ, so far from being the cause of insanity, is one of its most, what? Effectual remedies, for it is a potent soother of the nerves. So I'm going to go into some scientific research in a moment here about the relationship between church attendance and involvement and mental health. But I want to pause for a moment and just address what she said here. She said the religion of what brings a remedy? The religion of Christ. That's right. There are some false doctrines uh, in Babylon. And some of those false doctrines grossly misrepresent the character of God. And so far from being a source of healing, religion, even in Christendom, can become a source of mental illness. And we're told that, for instance, the doctrine of ever-burning hell has caused many to, to, driven many into insanity. I'll give you an illustration. I saw this happen before my eyes. A little bit of background. Had a Bible study with a local individual that we had met at a ministry that we had who was a Presbyterian. Now, this Presbyterian was a really great man, a great Christian, still a friend of mine. I really respect him. But he's a Presbyterian, and I don't know if you know this, but Presbyterians believe two things, and they're a very bad combination. They believe that God creates some people solely for the purpose of being lost. He creates some people just to damn them. Now, I'm three miles down the road from Westminster Theological Seminary. It's a great school. I took a class there. But they teach this, that God creates some people just to put them in hell. And they also teach that hell burns how long? forever and ever. To me, that's a very bad combination. Could you love a God? Could you serve a God who created some people just to damn them to an eternity in hellfire for the sins of one lifetime? They say this is the justice of God, but where's the justice in that? Please tell me. That's insanity, and it drives people into insanity. So we had this Bible study. I knew this was what this man believed, but he wasn't like into teaching it or anything, and the purpose of the Bible study was evangelism. So we were kind of trying to join in with him because he wanted to bring Christ to the local community, and we wanted to become friends with him, and so we were part of this Bible study. Well, there was a woman who was putting all the theological pieces together, and she was getting more and more agitated as the study went on, even though we weren't talking about theological issues. And at one point, she looked like she was just going to burst, and the guy leading the study just asked her what was wrong, and she said, she went into just a whole diatribe. She said, I, I, you know, we're talking about evangelism here, but I don't know if I even want to be a Christian. I mean, if God creates some people just to burn them forever in hell, I don't know if I even want to serve a God like that, much, much less bringing people to him. And, and then she went on, and she, she started ranting, and she said, I think about this all day long. I, I think about it while I'm frying hamburgers. Obviously, she wasn't a vegetarian. She said, I think about it while I'm boiling water for coffee. And obviously, she was a coffee drinker. She's like, but I think about it every time I see something hot. You know, I think about God burning people in hell forever. And the, these people he's just created to burn in hell forever and I just don't know if I want to serve a God like that much less evangelize and then it was like silent in the room you know 
And the leader of the study said, well, we'll pray for you. And I just, you know, I wasn't leading the study, so I really couldn't be too assertive, you know, but I just felt like saying, pray for her. She's the healthiest one here, you know. We need to be praying for ourselves if we believe that. But what I did instead was I called her and I said, would you mind having a Bible study with me? I'd like to share some things with you. And we sat down and I showed her from the scriptures that God is a God of love and a God of justice and that he doesn't make people's mind up for them and determine their destiny and he also doesn't roast them in hell forever. So she was relieved, and I could see the relief come to her. As the quote says, the religion of Christ is a potent soother of the nerves. Amen? So I want to talk a bit about the relationship between church and mental health. That relationship is a beneficial one. It is, we call it, mediated by the social connections in church. I tell almost all my clients, go to church. And I do it in fully good conscience as a practitioner because I know that church, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, is good for people. Now, there have been a few Adventist churches that I wouldn't want to send people to, but most of the time, I say, look for the nice people. You know, try to find the healthy people, and God will bless you. There is a huge volume of research about the relationship between church attendance and involvement and mental health. In fact, you as a Christian, and particularly if you have a healthy church that you're attending, can be proud to know, proud in the right way, to know that you are a member of the most effective mental health institution on the face of the earth. And I'm dead serious when I say that. In fact, the church keeps a lot of people out of institutions. And we really don't have that many institutions anymore. We just medicate people now. But it keeps a lot of people off of medication. That social connection plus the message of the gospel is tremendously powerful. Let's look at a few studies here, and I'm going to have to go through them very, very quickly. I'm just going to paraphrase. This one was done on women, showed a relationship between depression and church attendance and involvement. More church attendance, less depression. This one was done on uh, mothers, and it was shown that even if the kids didn't attend church, if the mothers attended church, the kids were better off. Isn't that amazing? Here's a study that was done on Hispanics. Church attendance was associated with better health care. They took care of themselves when they were involved with church. This was done on young people, and it was shown that the more involved they were in church, the less they smoked and engaged in other high-risk behaviors. This was done on senior citizens. Amazing study. They took two groups of senior citizens. One was getting social contact in a non-religious context, like the bar or the local VA or whatever, and then, or some society that they were in, and then another group got social contact in the church context. The ones, guess, guess which group had more health benefits? The church group. So it's not just the quantity of social contact, but the quality. And this is another study done on senior citizens regarding not just the being served or being blessed by others by attending church, but the fact that church affords us an opportunity to be in service to others. So elderly folks that are given a ministry in a local church thrive much better than they do if they have nothing to do. We have a, a lady in our church. Her name is Vashti Duff. She's well into her 80s at this point. She barely walk anymore. This woman is the most amazing human being. She marched with Martin Luther King during the civil rights movement. She's been a cop. She's been a parole officer. She's been there and done that. And up until just, up until she could barely, you know, stand, which she really can't anymore, 
she was still running community services. You know, we should, we should wear out rather than rust out, amen? Now, I was just talking to a friend of mine. He must be well into his 60s, and he's like starting a new ministry and doing all this. He was trying to retire. He said, I'm not retired. I'm retreaded, you know? So praise God. That's the kind of old person I want to be, and I'm getting there real fast, so um, that's a good thing. Listen to this amazing statement. Again, on the issue of how Christianity relates to psychology. Read it with me. The Christian alone can make the right use of knowledge. Science, in order to be fully appreciated, must be viewed from a religious standpoint. From what kind of standpoint? A religious standpoint. So science, in order to be understood, must be viewed from a religious standpoint. Isn't that a fascinating statement? I love that. I'm just throwing my papers here. Uh, I believe that long before we had this debacle on the West Coast, where there's a certain university that is purportedly teaching theistic evolution instead of six-day creationism, possibly, and I don't know anything about this in specific, but possibly we failed to view social sciences from a religious standpoint in our universities. And then this happened. In these days when skepticism and infidelity so often appear in a scientific garb, we need to be guarded on every hand. Through this means, our great adversaries deceiving thousands and leading them captive according to his will. The advantage he takes of the sciences, sciences which pertain to the human mind. Which sciences? Sciences which pertain to the human mind. That would be psychology, right? The advantage he takes of those sciences is tremendous. Here, serpent-like, he imperceptibly creeps in to corrupt the work of God. Serpent-like, weaving in between all the obstacles. Isn't that right? And then what's the next word? Imperceptibly. Does that mean that the serpent comes and we're all going, oh, there it is, there's a serpent, there's a snake? No, it means that we don't notice it at all. You know, social sciences are not as concrete as the physical sciences. And this is why I say I think we've probably compromised more in those departments than we have in the biology departments. Because those are facts that can be quantified more easily than the abstracts involved in social sciences. How do you, how do you measure feeling? Very difficult. But you can measure light, or you can measure water, or you can measure... You know what I'm saying? So because of the fluid nature of the social sciences, it's even easier for him to come in serpent-like, imperceptible, and corrupt the work of God. And notice it says the work of God, so it's not talking about corrupting the masses, it's not talking about the world, it's talking about the church here. And I, as I said, I don't have any information for you, I don't have any tales to tell of terrible things that have happened in our schools, but I do know that the enemy is like a roaring lion walking around, seeing who he can devour. And that when people come to counseling, they're very, very vulnerable. And it's an opportune moment if the counselor is not under the direction of the Holy Spirit for that individual, if they are infatuated with secular principles, to insert concepts and principles in that person's mind that could turn them away from Christ ultimately. And I'm very afraid of that. Aren't you? But I don't want to live in fear. 
So I want to give you some tools to use that you can use to navigate your way through this whole sorting process between psychology and the Word of God. I'm going to list several categories of people that have different schools of thought regarding how the two relate to one another. Okay, starting with the one on top, the secular school would say that the experts of the field of psychology are the authority on psychology and that the Bible is a myth. Obviously, we don't believe that. Okay, let's go to the next one. The tolerance school would say that the experts in the field of psychology are authority on matters of psychology, but that religion can be useful, the Bible can be helpful to some poor, ignorant, deceived people. Obviously, we're not of the tolerance school. But what about the parallel track school? This is one that I think is particularly appealing, especially to professionals. In the parallel track mindset, the experts in the field of psychology are authority on matters of psychology. The Bible is authority on matters of salvation. Now, do you see that there's an overcompartmentalization there? Because remember the first slide we studied that part of good biblical psychology is recovery from the leprosy of sin. In other words, salvation and human psycho biblical psychology are intertwined. You really can't take the two apart without doing violence to both. Amen? So I'm not of the parallel track school. I think we have to be exceedingly careful not to get puffed up about being these great experts, these professionals, as if we understand everything there is to know about human psychology because of Freud and Skinner and all those guys, and the Bible is just for religion. You know, the Bible is a mighty tool in all aspects of life. Now, what I'm not saying, and make sure you mark this point, is that the Bible is an exhaustive, comprehensive volume that addresses every single mental disorder and that there's no need for anything from the professional field. I don't believe that. I think some people need medication. If you don't believe that, live with a non-medicated schizophrenic for a while. You know, we have brokenness. We have physical brokenness. Sometimes people need medical intervention for physical problems. The brain is a physical organ. Things go terribly wrong with the brain. So let's not oversimplify things here and become fanatical about this, amen? I'm not saying the Bible is a comprehensive manual and that we don't need anything else to treat mental illness. I do use other sources. But I'm saying that the principles we find in the Word of God are overall, and they are the sorting tool that I use to differentiate what's good, what's helpful from what is not. The biblical school would say that psychology is a secular science, and that it is valuable in that it is a secular science. We don't believe the, that science is not valuable. Do you believe that? Don't you think that science has some value? value? Yes, it does. Well, there's a statement from uh, the pen of inspiration. It says, man's words, if of any value, can anybody finish that sentence? Man's words, if of any value, echo the words of God. Man's words, if of any value, echo the words of God. Does the voice of science sometimes echo the words of God? Does it sometimes substantiate the truths that we hold dear? Amen, it does. So it is of some, of some value to us. In the biblical school, the Bible, though, is the authority on human psychology. And then you would call this possibly cautious integration. I call myself a cautious integrationist. I will use things from scientific research. I will use sometimes methods and modalities provided that they harmonize with biblical principles. Are you with me so far? So that is the camp that I fall into. There's another camp I call the reactionary camp 
where the Bible is the authority on human psychology and they have that much right, but they go too far and they say that all psychology is to be shunned. You see, there is some good in secular psychology and sometimes I think that certain things that Christians have neglected over the years when, when secular psychology became popular, God meant to provoke the Jews to jealousy, so to speak and get Christians to uncover what was there in the word all along. And so he, he may have shined light on the paths of some of these secularists for the purpose of reaching his people and, and getting them to use what they had. So when we throw it all away, what we're doing is throwing the baby out with the what? With the bathwater. And we don't want to do that. So we don't want to say that all psychology is to be shunned. I feel that that is fear-based and reactive. Okay. I got to move real quickly here. Bottom line, uh, I think it is the wise man who said, of making of many books, there is no end. Are you overwhelmed sometimes by how much information there is all around us? I mean, with the internet and everything, there's so much information. And it's, a lot of it's really good, but who has time for it all? Fortunately, we have one book that is overall in authority and power and blessedness, and that is the Word of God. Paul said, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery which none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If you take worldly principles to their logical conclusion, they will lead to the crucifixion of Christ. And by the way, I can refute, I would love to take time. I don't have time to do, that, do this here, but invite me to your church, I'd be glad to do it. I'd love to take all the major theories of psychology and show what's right and what's wrong about them. Uh, it's a fascinating study. But bottom line, I can refute all of human psychology in one word, in one sentence, I should say, and that is that there is a basic premise that man can solve his own problems. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says when man fell into sin, he created a God-sized problem, and God must solve that problem now. Uh, Satan's plans and devices are soliciting us on every hand. We need to use great caution to closely investigate his devices, lest we be deceived. All right, so I want to move on here to how the gospel heals people emotionally, mentally, psychologically. You know, Dr. Nedley has made cognitive behavioral therapy very popular among Adventists, and I think that's a good thing. I use CBT all the time. It's a very good therapy, and of course, I use the biblical form of it. It's powerful. It's great stuff. Basically, what CBT is, is a method of thought control. And the way it helps people is if they can learn how to control their thinking and to th think correct thoughts, their emotions will often mold to their thoughts. So if they start thinking correctly, it will help them regulate their emotions ultimately. So um, I do that a lot with people and it's just a very powerful, very helpful kind of therapy. It's one of the things that has come out of the field of psychology that is of great value. But I tell you, it came from the Word of God. We're told casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I mean, these principles were in Scripture long before Ellis and Aaron Beck put them on paper and made a lot of money off of them. So, yes, I like CBT a lot, but there's something even better than CBT. It's called RBF therapy. Can anybody guess what that is? What's that? Close, but it would, you'd have, she said read the Bible, but that would be read Bible the. So no, it would be read Bible fully, I guess. So RBF therapy, can anybody guess what that is? I'll let you think about it. 
Thank you. Quotations regarding the Righteousness by Faith message that came in 1888, basically to give you a little nutshell version of the history. The Adventist church early on had fallen into pretty serious legalism. God sent a message of righteousness by faith, a Christ-centered message, through two young men named Jones and Wagner, and they preached this very gospel-rich, Christ-centered message, and Ellen White just had so many good things to say about it. In fact, uh, there's this compilation of 374 positive references to the Righteousness by Faith message preached by Jones and Wagner. Here's just a few of them. Streams of Lebanon, the matchless charms of Christ, precious light, present truth, the most precious light given, led to the confession of sin, balances the mind, I love that one. The Righteousness of Christ by Faith, a feast of fat things, brings healing and life and comfort. So you can see that tremendous power came through this message. And I'm gonna show you, by the grace of God, how it applies to human psychology in a very practical way. Any good system of psychology will answer three fundamental questions. Number one, what is our ideal state? Number two, what is our diagnosis? What's wrong with us? And number three, how are we healed? You could capsulize that by saying our purpose, our problem, and the solution. Are you with me so far? That is uh, three essential questions that any good system of psychology will answer right there, and RBF therapy answers them as well. Let's take purpose first. We're going to take these one by one. And let's look in Genesis, and I want you to read Genesis chapter 3 and verse, I believe it's verse 7. And let me just say this, that Genesis is the book of origins, isn't it? It tells us how we originated physically. It also tells us how we originated, we might say, psychologically. It has some very important lessons to teach us about human psychology, and I wish I had a lot more time. I could just do a whole exegesis of of Genesis 3, and you will see in Genesis 3 the most concise and yet comprehensive analysis of human nature that you've ever seen. I encourage you to, that's your assignment, take that home and study Genesis chapter 3 with a mind to human psychology, with an eye for human psychology. But right now, just read chapter 3 and verse 7. And let's read it together. And the eyes of them both, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry. Purpose. (laughs) Purpose, problem, and solution. Okay, back to to purpose. For what were we created? Genesis 2.17. God made man in his image, male and female, created he them. So man and woman together demonstrate the character of God. That's why marriage is such a profound responsibility and such a great opportunity. But I would say also, man, men and women together working in the cause of Christ. We can't have a good old boys club and have a witness like God wants us to have a witness. We need to work together, men and women, amen? And I'm not saying where I stand on women's ordination. I'm just saying let's work together. That's all I said. Don't read into what I said. So, <laughs> all right. So, Genesis 2.17 says we were created in God's image. So we were created to be like him in what specific way? We were created to be like God in in, in, in what sense? We were created to be like God in character. What is character? I think of a statement in the fifth volume of the Testimonies that says, thoughts and feelings combined make up moral character. So according to that definition, what would character be? Character is your inner life, isn't that right? So psychology is a study of the inner life of man. 
And so if characters are inner life, then essentially psychology, Christian psychology, is the study of the character building process. Are you with me so far? So God created us to be like him in character. Uh, are we like him in character? It's sad that man fell into sin, but God created us for this lofty purpose. And let me give you a little background on that. This Bible is like falling apart. It's my grandmother's Bible. Thank you. It's so precious. Let me give you a little background on that. You know that the enemy of souls, uh, Lucifer, he orchestrated this political campaign in heaven and he led astray, we think, about a third of the angels. The two-thirds that were left apparently uh, were loyal to God but still, wanted, still needed a revelation of God's character. When you're accused of a crime, you need what? Someone to testify on your behalf. And what do we call that? We call that a witness. And so essentially with the human race, God created witnesses. Isn't that right? So that they would be like him in character in a unique way such that these unfallen beings could look upon the human race and see a revelation of God. He created us so that he could say, look at them and you'll see me. You got that? You know, you know what I'm saying? So let me show you some proof for that. I just love this. This is uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to look at, oh boy, am I going to be able to find this? This is a different Bible. Okay, Paul is talking about um, preaching the gospel. And chapter 3 verse 10 says that he preaches the gospel to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church this manifold wisdom of God. Someone read that from the King James. This is not the King James. Does anybody have a King James? Ephesians 3.10. That's a King James? Yep. Really? Okay. Bottom line, it is through the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places that this mystery is taught. So the angels are looking at us to learn something about God's character. Amen? Isn't that profound? Doesn't that just, just, just sort of uplift you with a sense of purpose? Wow, I'm just not this workaday guy that, you know, was just created to, you know, like dig ditches and keep the dishes washed and just do a bunch of mundane things and then die. I was created for this lofty purpose. Do you see why we have much more self-worth uh, when we're in line with biblical psychology than secular psychology? God gives us a real strong purpose. And, you know, purpose is everything. I had one client come to me who had been one of these straight-A students and star young people. You know the kind of young person that's real conservative and they're taking a stand on all the right issues and they're getting straight A's in school and they go on scholarship and they get their graduate degree and they end up in a big profession and everybody's just so proud of them. That's how this person was. She, this individual came to me and he was just, he was amazing. Everybody was amazed by him. And he just sort of flew through life until he got close to 30 and then he encountered what I call the brick wall and he crashed, couldn't get out of bed. And he came and had counseling sessions, basically figured out that he was in the wrong career, that he had gone on what everybody else had said he should do, and he didn't really know himself, and he really wanted to be in some kind of charitable work, some kind of ministry. And so he got out of that profession, 
to the consternation of many that had paid for his schooling and so forth, he got out of that and he got into ministry. And every, from the moment that he realized that he was in the wrong profession and that he was called to, to something better, he started to recover. So that's just an idea of how powerfully purpose can impact us. We have a high purpose that God has put before us, amen? And that purpose is to be like Jesus in character and to demonstrate God's love to the universe, not just the world, but the universe. Unfortunately, we fell into misapprehension of God and we needed a revelation of God's character. That revelation came through Jesus and then we were reinstated to the same purpose. So you are again called to demonstrate the character of Jesus, not just to the unfallen worlds, but to all the, the, the people of the world, to the neighbor and to the uh, person across the street from you and the guy at the post office, yes. Amen, that's the one I like. By the church, to the principalities and powers, or some of them say through the church, to the principalities and powers. Let's just run very quickly through Genesis chapter 3 and what happened. Okay, now I want you to read Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Um, go ahead and, and, and just have your eyes on that, and let's just kind of read it together. I'm um, going to have to find it a second here. Genesis chapter 3. And let's read it together. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. This is immediately after they had both partaken of the forbidden fruit. The eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. I believe this is addressing the issue of guilt. This is sort of a fundamental shame and guilt that we carry, courtesy of our fallen nature. It's just part of us. And that's what this is, this is addressing. And then the next crack out of the box is what? Second half of verse 7, it says, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. We're told that the fig leaves symbolize self-justification. This was man's attempt to cover his own unrighteousness by manufacturing a righteousness of his own. Can you see that? And then going on in the story, we don't have time to take it verse by verse, but basically man is in a state of denial, and we talk about denial. It's not a river in Egypt. It's a condition where something is obvious and you don't see it. Amen? And so that is the condition that man found himself in. He was denying the depth of his own depravity, the severity of his own condition, saying that I'm really okay and I can handle this and I can fix this. I fell into sin, but this is a manageable situation here. No, the reality is that man, when man fell into sin, he created a God-sized problem that only God could fix, but at this point, man is in denial of that. As a result of all this, fear comes into human experience, stemming straight out of this guilt that man has this vast reservoir of in his soul now. He is now afraid, and he's afraid of the presence of God. God comes into the garden in the cool of the day, the same day, and he addresses the issue of what they have done, and what does Adam do? First, first thing he says is two words, the woman. So what is he doing? He's deflecting the blame. What did, what, let's break this down for a moment. What did Adam think was about to happen to him? He thought he was about, because it says, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And he does not have a very sophisticated understanding of the gospel at this point. He doesn't know the theological terms like justification and probation and all those kinds of things. He takes God's words very literally. doesn't know about spiritual death versus physical death, second death, first death. He doesn't know any of that. He just thinks he's about to die. And so in a last-ditch effort to preserve his own life, he says, the 
woman, she's the reason that I fell into sin. Blame is part and parcel to, it's bundled with the sin problem, isn't it? We can't deny the seriousness, the depravity of our own condition without casting blame on someone else. It's a very universal problem in human nature. And in Alcoholics Anonymous circles, they call it stinking thinking. But I want to also bring out that there was animosity that came into human experience at this point. There's this animosity between the man and the woman. Adam had just sold the creation to the hands of the enemy. Why? Because he did not want to be separated from who? He would, in fact, rather die with her than live what? Without her. That's right. He loved her so, quote-unquote, loved her so much. But, you know, whenever we make an idol out of a human being, put them before God, that love that we have for them very quickly uh, decomposes, so to speak. And that's exactly what happened here. In the cool of the day, he comes into the garden and he confronts man. And this man who only hours before had said, I'd rather die with her than live without her, is now willing to let her die in his place. Have you ever experienced that where you thought someone really, really loved you or you thought you loved someone and then poof, it's gone. That's how fickle is human love when it's separated from the principle of agape love, from God's divine love and his Holy Spirit. So can you see a really accurate and yet comprehensive synopsis of the human condition in Genesis 3? Do you see what I'm seeing here? I'm just, I'm just, I'm serious. I'm amazed by it continually as I see things present themselves in a clinical setting. I want to talk about justification for a moment. We're going to really dissect this whole concept of justification. We're going to talk about self-justification versus justification. But let's get an idea of what the Greek word means. And here's all the various tenses. Whenever you see the word judge, justice, right, righteousness, justly, all of those words come from the Greek word dikaio, and I don't know if I said that right, but deal with it. And it essentially means to make right according to a standard. There has to be a standard for something to be made right. So here we have the Ten Commandment law. Man has fallen beneath that standard. Have we not? Amen? Justification is a process of bringing man back into harmony with that standard. Unfortunately, in our fallen condition, separated from Christ... We are below the standard. But instead of depending upon him, we lower the standard. We we, uh, denigrate the law of God. We lower the standard to fit kind of our comfort zone. You know, we take on something manageable. You know, we're going to have a standard, but it's going to be our own construct. We lower the standard, and then we can manufacture our own form of righteousness in harmony with that standard. Are you with me so far? Okay, this is really getting good here. Now, those fig leaves. You know, Adam and Eve made these fig leaves, didn't they, in the garden? As I see it, fig leaves symbolize all our varied attempts to fix ourselves. Now, they are, there's a huge variety of them, and I'm going to try to bring that out right now. But the essential component to all of these various ways that we fix ourselves is that we, we think we can fix ourselves, basically, whereas only God can give us his righteousness. We cannot justify ourselves. Human self-justification doesn't work. It's ineffective. Amen? Let's look at the various forms that self-justification takes. Number one, there's a legalistic form of self-justification, very prevalent in churches, particularly 
conservative groups are very prone to this particular kind of fig leaf experience, where if I just obey all of these standards and cross every T and dot every I, on that basis, I will be justified. This is toxic religion, friends. Legalism is toxic. And it is alive and well in living in the Adventist church. Don't fool yourself. It is. In fact, I would go this far, and I would say that it's alive and well in living in you. And unless the Holy Spirit comes along and excises it from your heart, you're going to become a really great legalist because the higher the standard, the greater potential for legalism. Amen? But there are other forms of legalism. I don't mean to get hedons off the hook here. There is a hedonistic fig leaf just trying to get all the pleasure that I can get and building myself up with that pleasure. What about materialistic fig leaves? People that think they're better than others, that the people that think they're valuable just because of what they own. That's an attempt to instill in myself a sense of value. What about narcissistic fig leaves? Narcissism is a, a pathological form of vanity and pride. Oh, if I could just look the perfect look, if I could just have the perfect uh, life, the pretty life, so to speak, Narcissism is, is, is pathological vanity. There is actually a narcissistic personality disorder. Emotionalistic fig leaves, where I just go after that emotional experience, either through a relationship or through a worship experience. Oh, if I can just have that emotional high, then I'll be, I'll be okay. Um, achievistic fig leaves. This is the one that I'm very prone to. I'm very goal-oriented, and I love to set a goal for myself and then strive after that goal and accomplish that goal. I love the feeling. I have my list, and I love the feeling of checking things off the list. But that can become an end in and of itself. And the Lord sometimes taps on my shoulder and says, Jennifer, you know, you have value whether you do anything or not. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. I have to do all these things. He's like, no, I died for you, Jennifer. Rest in me. Amen? Ritualistic fig leaves, and, and kind of a pathological or diagnosable form of this would be OCD, where you have to just wash the doorknob enough times, or you have to check the iron enough times, and you do that ritual enough times, and you feel a sense of relief. Do you know that OCD is considered an anxiety disorder? It's based on fear, and that fear stems back to the Garden of Eden. Obsessive-compulsive disorder. Sorry, I'm moving too fast here. It's uh, obsessive OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay, nihilistic fig leaves. Some people are obsessed, and particularly young people tend to be obsessed with death, uh, self-mutilation, self-harm. I think that this is a form of an, it's an attempt to alleviate guilt. Can we alleviate our own guilt, friends? In my experience, no. We must know. We must receive righteousness from an outside source. I want you to remember something that fig leaves have two sides, like any leaf. There's two sides. There's a shiny bright side, and there's the underside. So there's the, the bright side that might be the entitlement mentality that some people have. Oh, I'm so good, and that's why I deserve to be justified. But then there's the underside, and the underside is, I will never deserve, but I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying, and then maybe someday, if I try hard enough, then God will make me worthy based on my own works. In reference to that, I want to read this quotation. Nothing, how much? Nothing but the righteousness of Christ can entitle us to one of the blessings of the covenant of grace. There are many who have long desired and tried to obtain these blessings. How many? Many. And that's not talking about many human beings. That's talking about many believers. So many in this room, brothers and sisters, have 
long desired and tried to obtain these blessings, but have not received them. Why have they not received them? Because they have cherished, they have did what? They cherished the idea that they could do something to make themselves worthy of them. Christ is our only hope of salvation. This means that many in this room cherish the idea that they can do something to make themselves worthy of the righteousness of Jesus. It's, what I'm saying here is that self-justification is just part of our nature. Think of it this way. What is the original sin? The original sin was eating the mango, right? It wasn't an apple, it was a mango. Because mangoes are much more tempting. So whatever it was, eating the mango. But what was the original sin as pertains once man was in a fallen condition? What's that? What's the first, okay, good part of that, but what's the first thing he did in a fallen condition? What's the very first act that was committed? It was covering his own sin. So what I'm saying is that self-justification, and I've got to get this across to you guys, it's our default mode. It's innate, it's intrinsic, it's essential, it's just basic to human nature. We are by nature self-justifying and only a constant effort to comprehend and embrace and incorporate the principles of the righteous by faith message can extricate us from that state of continual self-justification. It's not that only religious zealots are self-justifying. It's all of us, even the ones that are walking around going, I'll never make it. They're also filled with that principle of self-justification because they think that they can do something to deserve the righteousness of Jesus. Am I making that point clear? Okay, good. So let's go on here. Um, Notice that they sewed fig leaves together. Who sewed the fig leaves together? They sewed fig leaves together and made who? They made themselves coverings. That's right. Notice also that God preached the first sermon, well, the second gospel sermon, when he did something very, very important. We're told that for Adam and his wife, who? The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So there are three messages that God was trying to get across in those skins. The secret of the skins, if we call it that. Number one, they were God-made. God has this loom in heaven, and he weaves on that loom the righteousness of Jesus, and our righteousness must come from that heavenly source. It must be God-made. Amen? Second one is God died. Think about it for a moment. Here they are in the Garden of Eden. What has been their relationship to those animals prior to sin? What is their relationship to the animals? The deer were eating out of their hand. The lions, they were, they were petting the lions on the head. The birds were landing on their shoulder. They had, these were their pets. These were their friends. Now they've become their garments. I want you to think about what that might have been like. God comes along and he, and he takes this animal and he slits his throat and there's blood running down and then he rips the skin. This is my dog, by the way. This is my daughter. It's not my dog. My daughter gave it to me for the summer, but I'm deeply in love with this dog. And she had just stuck her face in a beehive and so she's like poofed out all over. She's a, she's a, um, a prog rotter, which is, looks like a chihuahua. She's the size of a chihuahua, but much prettier. 
if she doesn't have bee stings on her face. But anyway, I'm in love with this dog. And I, I want you to get in touch with what I'm saying here by thinking about your favorite pet. The throat gets slit, the skin gets ripped off, and that's what you're wearing. What God was getting across to them is something has to die for you to be justified. And we see this theme of people trying to get around the death factor throughout the Bible, i.e. Cain giving his vegetables, Adam and Eve with their fig leaves. We're always trying to get around that factor. Something has to die for us to be justified. You know, I have clients that say, I don't want to cost anything. I don't want to trouble anyone. They have low self-esteem. I tell them, you're already too expensive. You're, you've already cost the most valuable thing in the universe, the blood of the Son of God. There is no way around this. You are a human being. You are infinitely valuable in his eyes. He died for you. You cannot reduce your value by denying it. You must embrace this. Something had to die to save you. And his name is Jesus, and he did die. Now, just at least do him the favor of embracing his, of receiving his righteousness. Amen? And the third thing that I believe God was trying to get across to them is that the skins actually covered them. Fig leaves do not protect you against the wind and the rain and the cold, do they? I'm not asking you to test that theory. They would probably protect you against this weather, but I still don't recommend wearing them because you'd get arrested. But but the skins, you know, they, they were in a fallen world now, and the rain was going to come down, and the hail, and so forth. The elements were going to come at them, and they needed something substantial to cover them. The righteousness of Jesus actually covers us. It's not just that we're engaging in this cognitive reframing process, believing in it so that we can experience change. That all becomes kind of new agey and fictitious, there's actual justification that goes on. We cannot really separate the legal aspect of justification from the transformational aspect of it. Are you following me? So don't try to separate the two. When you come to Jesus and you say, I am a sinner, Lord, and he gives you the gift of repentance, don't wait to come to him until you repent because it's like you'll wait forever. You come to him, he gives you the gift of repentance. When you actually experience sorrow for your sins, confess your sins, and receive his righteousness, your record is actually changed in heaven. Your, your case is covered by his righteousness in heaven. There is actual justification that goes on. But the transformational aspect of justification occurs through faith in that process. Amen? So it is both. So God is communicating a very powerful gospel sermon to Adam and Eve through the symbol of the skins. I want to talk very briefly, oh, I'm going to read one more uh, statement, and then I'm going to talk briefly about witnessing through counseling. Rest is found when all self-justification, all reasoning from a selfish standpoint is put away. Entire self-surrender and acceptance of his ways is the secret of perfect rest in his love. Do just what he has told you to do and be assured that God will do all that he has said he would do. Have you come to him, renouncing all your what? Your makeshifts, I like that. I would say fig leaves, so it would fit in there perfectly. All your makeshifts, all your unbelief, all your self-righteousness. Have you done that? You're being asked a question here. Have you come to him renouncing your own self-righteousness? I encourage you to take that list that I had up before. Figure out where your weakness is. What are you trusting in instead of his righteousness? And then come to him and renounce that. All your unbelief, all your self-righteousness, come to him just as you are weak, helpless, and ready to die. Amen? I want to just talk briefly about 
how counseling turns into evangelism. Um, by the way, the righteous by faith message is called the message of his healing grace. How has counseling worked? I, I love evangelism. I got into the field of counseling. I was wondering how it would all work out. I have probably 10 clients. I have a very small practice, but I have probably 10 clients from a local church um, that's like young people, rock and roll kind of church. And so my na- the word has gotten out, and, and I've had probably 10 clients from this one church, and I'll tell you about one. I sometimes walk with my clients. Um, when you walk, you do something to your brain. It's called bilateralizing. It can help you process information better. It can also help you process trauma better. And so I thought, you know, I'll take some of my clients on walks. Why not? You get the exercise of fresh air, and you enhance your brain at the same time. So we're in this beautiful park that's near my home with one of my clients, and we're way into the interior of the park, and there's a little bathroom in there. It's almost an outhouse, teeny little bathroom. And I'm in there, and it's very small, and I was waiting behind this little girl that was washing her hands with her mom, her mommy. And I was real close to them because it's very small. And all of a sudden, the mother turns around and says, are you Jennifer? I said, I think so. <laughs> and uh, she said, I was just on your web page. So it turned out that she was part of this group um, that knew me through the local church, and now she's coming for counseling. So, you know, God has worked in mysterious ways as I have gone into the marketplace, as we, we say at ASI, you know, Christ in the marketplace. I, I can't do the kind of evangelism that some are doing, at least not in the counseling sessions. It wouldn't even be ethical to do that, but I can evangelize in my own way. Now, what about you? You know, God has called each one of us to be lay counselors, because as we work with people who are broken and devastated by sin, they're going to start sharing their issues with us, are they not? Have you not found that you go to people to study the Bible and you just want to get through the Bible study real fast and leave, but you end up spending a long time ministering to their needs, amen? God can use you in a powerful way in that context. I want to encourage you along those lines. There are two aspects to counseling as I see it. One is from the Greek parakleo, and it means to come alongside. The other one is nuthetio, and that means to admonish. There's a type of counseling called nuthetic counseling. I like a lot about it, but I'm a little concerned because the emphasis is on leading people to repentance. I think we must show empathy to them before we can point out their sin. Amen? So the only time I really rebuke people, which is rare, but I do occasionally only in the context of empathy. So I want to talk about empathy for a moment. Empathy is, like, we talk about various types of psychology being either validated or not by science. The single most effective factor in counseling today is empathy. And I'll show you some research, uh, some statements from some research on that. Counselor empathy rather than technique was by far the best predictor of outcome. Here's another one. The magnitude of the evidence is nothing short of amazing. There are few things in the field of psychology for which the evidence is so strong. The evidence for the necessity, if not the sufficiency, of the therapeutic conditions of accurate empathy, respect, warmth, and therapeutic genuineness is incontrovertible. Isn't that amazing? I want to share another statement with you in closing, and I don't know how much time we have or not, but um, if we have time, we can have question and answer. How close are we to the end? 20 minutes? Sorry. How much time do we have? Five minutes. Okay. I figured. 
Are you familiar with this statement? Let's read it together. If we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tenderhearted and pitiful, pause for a moment, that word pitiful, we don't use it in the way she's using it here anymore. Pitiful now means like, oh, that's pitiful, that's terrible, that's, you know, it's sort of a denigrating word. But she meant empathy. So let's insert empathy where pitiful is. If we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tender-hearted and empathic would be the form of the word, there would be how many? 100 conversions to the truth where now there's only one. So this is why I wanted to share this with you, friends. I know most of you are just getting by as far as your day-to-day life in trying to share the gospel with people. And maybe you have a Bible study with someone, or maybe you're just trying to minister to some hurting person. And you feel like your time is consumed with all of this talk, and people come to you, and they talk about their problems, and, and you just feel like you're not accomplishing anything. I want to lay that thought to rest. You are accomplishing something when you are em- empathizing with people. It is powerful. Empathy is powerful. So be of good courage. God is using you to minister to others. If you are ministering to, if you're, if you're empathizing with people in their pain, then that is the window through which you can, or the door through which you can lead them to Jesus. Amen? Okay. Let's just have a couple questions maybe before we close off here um, or comments. Tell me you hate me, whatever you want to say. Okay, good. I have some books up here that I can give away on a donation basis if you want. That's more of a book on um, the gospel. I'm working on a book for Pacific Press that should be out in January, sometime around 2011, called Jesus Psychology. So I'm going to try to make it a pretty comprehensive book. So look for that in the ABCs. Um, Go ahead. And, And I hope that helps. I have PowerPoint presentations, I write articles, so you can, we can chat about that. Yeah? Um, I just want to say, first of all, I really enjoyed uh, the presentation, but I remember you talking about um, emotionalness in the list of yeah. things, and I was uh, wondering, is it possible to, um, you know, all the time, constantly be having an emotional high while you're um, in contact with I think if you set that as a standard, you'll be disappointed. Well, not that. I, if you, not if you that expect you know, your religious experience to always feel like an emotional high, it's just, it's, it, your, the human mind isn't, brain isn't capable of it. You'll get like dopamine overload and, you know. Well, I don't know if you have experienced this, but I think happiness is a choice. You know, like Paul said, you know, the outer man wastes away, but the inner man is renewed day by day. Um, You know, if we choose to be cheerful, we will have more positive feelings, even in the midst of negative circumstances. There's a lot you can do to move your own emotional state toward positivity by making correct choices. 
but there will be times when we'll be down, and I think it's important to a Christian experience to have those times because it increases our depth and ability to sympathize with other people. And there's nothing worse when you're like, I'm really depressed, I'm really struggling, to someone that goes, I'm not, I'm happy all the time, you know? How useful would you be, you know? <laughs> so, go ahead. Yeah, I, we can work something out. Oh, good. And I've really struggled with the whole psychology concept. Yes. I've really been struggling with it. So thank you so much for your presentation. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Praise yeah. the Lord. Yeah. Anybody else? Go ahead. Okay, I would really like to do my whole Jesus psychology thing on a, in a taped format before I'm 80 years old and non-photogenic, not that I'm photogenic now, but you know, um, so I would like to do that. Um, so pray that that happens. Would really like to do that. I think they're videoing, taping this, correct? Yeah, so you'll have, that's gonna be an audio verse? ASI, so you don't, you can't download the audio, the DV, the video from Audioverse, but you can download the audio from Audioverse. So you can get this talk. Do you all know about Audioverse? Okay, go to Audioverse and you can download the talk, just the audio version of it. And you say that they will be selling a DVD. Oh, ASI website has the DVD, uh, the video uploaded. Okay. The we, how, who's we? Audioverse. Audioverse has a booth. Okay, but on the ASI website, you can get the videos, so that's good. You can watch the videos. Um, just go to their website, and they'll have a link. Okay, anybody else? Okay, go ahead. You can leave now if you want, but we'll, we'll, we'll um, keep talking. Amen. Let's pray before everybody leaves. Father in heaven, thank you for being here. Thank you for helping me get through this. And um, I ask that you bless the rest of our time at ASI, that we would be fortified and equipped to bring the gospel to the world. For Jesus' sake, I ask this. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.